You are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. The Sapphire Planet. On August 5, 1962, police captured Mandela along with Cecil Williams near Howick. A large number of groups have been accused of having tipped off the police about Mandela's whereabouts, including Mandela's hosts in Durban, Nadu. Also, white members of the South African Communist Party and the CIA was too accused. But Mandela considered none of these connections to be credible and instead attributes his arrest to his own carelessness in concealing his movements. Of the CIA link in particular, Mandela's official biographer, Anthony Sampson, believes that the claim cannot be substantiated. Jailed in Johannesburg, Marshall Square Prison, he was charged with inciting worker strikes and leaving the country without permission. Representing himself with Slovo's legal advisor, Mandela intended to use the trial to showcase the ANC's moral opposition to racism. While supporters demonstrated outside the court, the trial was moved to Pretoria, where Winnie could visit him in his cell, and he began correspondence studies for a Bachelor's of Law degree from the University of London. His hearing began on October 15th, but he disrupted proceedings by wearing a traditional karas refusing to call any witnesses and turning his plea of mitigation into a political speech. Found guilty, he was sentenced to five years' imprisonment. As he left the courtroom, supporters sang Kosko Sikili Ayevka. On July 11, 1963, police raided Lily's Leaf Farm arresting those they found there 
and uncovering paperwork documenting MK's activities, some of which mention Nelson Mandela. The Riviona trial began at Pretoria Supreme Court on October 9th, with Mandela and his comrades charged with four counts of sabotage and conspiracy violently to overthrow the government. Their chief prosecutor was Percy Utar, who called for them to receive the death penalty. Judge Cordes de Wet soon threw out the prosecution's case for insufficient evidence, but Utar reformulated the charges, presenting his case new from December until February 1964, calling 173 witnesses and bringing thousands of documents and photographs to the trial. With the exception of James Cantor, who was innocent of all charges, Mandela and the accused admitted sabotage, but denied they had ever agreed to initiate guerrilla war against the government. They used the trial to highlight their political cause. At the opening of the defense's proceedings, Mandela gave a three-hour speech. That speech, which was inspired by Castro's History Will Absolve Me speech, was widely reported in the press despite official censorship and has been hailed as one of his greatest speeches. The trial gained international attention with global calls for the release of the accused from such institutions as the United Nations and the World Peace Council. The University of London voted Mandela to its presidency, and nightly vigils for him were held in St. Paul's Cathedral, London. Deeming them to be violent communist agitators, South Africa's government ignored all calls for clemency, and on June 12, 1964, DeWet found Mandela and two of his co-accused guilty on all four charges, sentencing them to life imprisonment rather than death. Mandela and his co-accused were transferred from Pretoria to the prison on Robbins Island, remaining there for the next 18 years. Isolated from non-political prisoners in Section B, Mandela was imprisoned in a damp, concrete cell measuring 8 feet by 7 feet, with a straw mat on which to sleep. Verbally and physically harassed by several white prison wardens, the Riviona trial prisoners spent their days breaking rocks into gravel until being reassigned in January 1965 to work in a lime quarry. Mandela was initially forbidden to wear his sunglasses, and the glare from the lime permanently damaged his eyesight. At night, he worked on his LLB degree, but newspapers were forbidden, and he was locked in solitary confinement on several occasions for possessing smuggled news clippings. Classified as the lowest grade of prisoner, Class D, he was permitted one visit and one letter every six months, although all mail was heavily censored. The political prisoners took part in work and hunger strikes, the latter considered largely ineffective by Mandela, 
to improve prison conditions, viewing this as a microcosm of the anti-apartheid struggle. A and C prisoners elected him to their four-man high organ, along with Sisulu, Govan Becky, and Raymond Halaba, and involved himself in a group representing all political prisoners on the island. Ulundi, through which he forged links with PAC and Yuchi Chan club members, initiating the University of Robben Island, whereby prisoners lectured on their own areas of expertise. He debated topics such as homosexuality and politics with his comrades, getting into fierce arguments on the latter with Marxists like Becky and Harry Gowala. Although attending Christian Sunday services, Mandela studied Islam. He also studied Afrikaans, hoping to build a mutual respect with the wardens and convert them to his cause. Various official visitors met with Mandela. Most significant was the liberal parliamentary representative, Helen Sussman, of the Progressive Party, who championed Mandela's cause outside of prison. On September 1970, he met British Labour Party Prime Minister Dennis Healy. South African Minister of Justice Jimmy Kruger visited in December 1974, but he and Mandela did not get on. His mother visited in 1968, dying shortly afterward, and his firstborn son Thembi died in a car accident the following year. Mandela was forbidden from attending either funeral. His wife was rarely able to visit, being regularly imprisoned herself for political activity, and his daughters first visited in December 1975. Winnie got out of prison in 1977, but was forcibly settled in Brantford, still unable to visit him. From 1967, prison prison conditions improved. Black prisoners were given trousers rather than shorts. Games were permitted, and the standard of their food was raised. Mandela later commented on how football made us feel alive and triumphant, despite the situation we found ourselves in. In 1969, an escape plan for Mandela was developed by Gordon Bruce. But it was abandoned after being infiltrated by an agent of the South African Bureau of State Security, who hoped to see Mandela shot during the escape. In 1970, Commander Piet Manderhorst became commanding officer. Mandela, seeing an increase in the physical and mental abuse of prisoners, complained to visiting judges, who. Had Bandenhorst reassigned, he was replaced by Commander Willie Wilsmays, who developed a cooperative relationship with Mandela, and was keen to improve prison standards. By 1975, Mandela had become a Class A prisoner, allowing greater number of visits and letters. He corresponded with anti-apartheid activists like Mangosuthu Bethelizi. And Desmond Tutu. That year, he began his autobiography, 
which was smuggled to London, but remained unpublished at the time. Prison authorities discovered several pages, and his study privileges were stopped for four years. Instead, he devoted his spare time to gardening and reading until he was able to resume his law degree in 1980. By the late 1960s, Mandela's fame had been eclipsed, eclipsed by Steve Bicko and the Black Consciousness Movement, known as the BCM. Seeing the ANC as ineffectual, the BCM called for militant action, but following the Soweto uprisings of 1976, many BCM activists were imprisoned on Robben Island. Mandela tried to build a relationship with these young radicals, although he was critical of their rela- racialism and contempt for white anti-apartheid activists. Renewed international interest in his plight came in July 1978 when he celebrated his 60th birthday. He was awarded an honorary doctorate in Lesto, the Jawaharlal Nehru Award for International Understanding in India in 1979 and the Freedom of the City of Glasgow, Scotland in 1981. In March 1980, the slogan Free Mandela was developed by journalist Percy Cuobozo, sparking an international campaign that led the UN Security Council to call for his release. Despite increasing foreign pressure, the government refused, relying on a powerful foreign Cold War allies in U.S. President Ronald Reagan and United Kingdom Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Both considered Mandela a communist terrorist and supported the suppression of the ANC. In April 1982, Mandela was transferred to Polesmoor Prison in Tokai, Cape Town, along with senior ANC leaders Walter Sisulu, Andrew Mlangelny, Ahmad Kathrada, and Rabin Halmaba. They believed that they were being isolated to remove their influence on younger activists. Conditions at Poolsmore Prison were better than at Robben Island, although Mandela missed the camaraderie and scenery of the island. Getting on well with Poolsmore commanding officer, Brigadier Monroe, Mandela was permitted to create a roof garden. Also reading voraciously, and corresponding widely, now permitted 52 letters a year. He was appointed patron of the Multiracial United Democrat Front, or the UDF, founded to combat reforms implemented by South African President P.W. Botha. Botha's National Party government had permitted colored and Indian citizens to vote for their own parliaments, which had control over education, health, and housing. But black Africans were excluded from the system. Like Mandela, the UDF saw this as an attempt to divide the anti-apartheid movements on racial lines. Violence across the country escalated, with many fearing civil war. Under pressure from an international lobby, multinational banks stopped investing in South Africa, resulting in economic stagnation. 
numerous banks and Thatcher asked Botha to release Mandela, then at the height of his international fame, to defuse the volatile situation. Although considering Mandela a dangerous arch-Marxist in February 1985, Botha offered him a release from prison on condition that he unconditionally rejected violence as a political weapon. Mandela spurned the offer, releasing a statement through his daughter Zindizi, stating, What freedom am I being offered while the organization of the people, the ANC, remains banned? Only free men can negotiate. A prisoner cannot enter into contracts. In 1985, Mandela underwent surgery on an enlarged prostate gland before being given new solitary quarters on the ground floor. He was met by seven eminent persons, an international delegation sent to negotiate a settlement. But Bota's government refused to cooperate. In June, calling the state of emergency and initiating a police crackdown on arrest, the anti-apartheid resistance fought back with the ANC committing 231 attacks in 1986 and 235 attacks in 1987. Utilizing the army and right-wing parliamentaries to combat the resistance, the government secretly funded Zulu nationalist movement in Katha to attack ANC members, furthering the violence. Mandela requested talks with Bota, but was denied Instead, secretly meeting with Ministers of Justice Kobe Kotisi in 1987, having a further 11 meetings over the next three years. Kotisi organized negotiations between Mandela and a team of four government figures starting in May 1988. The team agreed to the release of political prisoners and the legalization of the ANC on the condition that they permanently renounce violence, break links with the Communist Party, and not insist on majority rule. Mandela flat out rejected those conditions, insisting that the ANC would only end the armed struggle when the government renounced violence. Mandela's 70th birthday in July 1988 attracted international attention, notably with Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday tribute concert in London's Wembley Stadium. Although presently, globally, as a heroic figure, he faced personal problems when ANC leaders informed him that Winnie, his wife, had set herself up as head of a criminal gang the Mandela United Football Club who had been responsible for torturing and killing opponents including children in Soweto though some encouraged him to divorce her he decided to remain loyal until she was found guilty by trial recovering from tuberculosis exacerbated by the dank conditions in his cell in December 1988, Mandela was moved to Victor Vister's prison near Parr, 
Here, he was housed in the relative comfort of the warden's house with a personal cook, using the time to complete his law degree. There, he was permitted many visitors, such as anti-apartheid campaigner and longtime friend Harry Schwartz. Mandela organized secret communications with exiled ANC leader Oliver Tambo. In 1989, Bota suffered a stroke, remaining, retaining the state presidency, but stepping down as leader of the National Party to be replaced by the conservative F.W. de Klerk. In a surprise move, Bota invited Mandela to a meeting over tea in July 1989, an invitation Mandela considered genial. Mota was replaced as state president by de Klerk six weeks later. The new president believed that apartheid was unsustainable and unconditionally released all ANC prisoners except Mandela. Following the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989, de Klerk called his cabinet together to debate legalizing the ANC and freeing Mandela. Although some were deeply opposed to his plan, de Klerk met with Mandela in December to discuss the situation, a meeting both men considered friendly. Before releasing Mandela unconditionally and legalizing all formally banned political parties, on February 2, 1990. Shortly thereafter, for the first time in 20 years, photographs of Mandela were allowed to be published in South Africa. Leaving Victor Vester Prison on February 11th, Mandela held Winnie's hand in front of a mass crowds and press. The event was broadcast live across the world. Driven to Cape Town City Hall through crowds, he gave a speech declaring his commitment to peace and reconciliation with the white minority. But he made it clear that the ANC's armed struggle was not over and would continue as a purely defensive action against the violence of apartheid. He expressed hope that the government would agree to negotiations so that there may no longer be the need for the armed struggle and that insisted that his main focus was to bring peace to the black majority and give them the right to vote in national and local elections. Staying at the home of Desmond Tutu, in the following days Mandela met with friends, activists, and press, giving a speech to 100,000 people at Johannesburg Soccer City. Mandela proceeded on an African tour, meeting supporters and politicians in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Libya, Algeria, continuing to Sweden, where he was reunited with Tambu, and then London, where he appeared at the Nelson Mandela, an international tribute for a free South African concert at Wembley Stadium. Encouraging foreign countries to support sanctions against the apartheid government, in France he was welcomed by President Francois Mitterrand, in Vatican City by Pope John Paul II, and in the United Kingdom 
he met Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. In the United States, he met President George H.W. Bush, addressed both houses of Congress, and visited eight cities, being particularly popular among the African-American community. In Cuba, he met President Fidel Castro, whom he had long admired, with the two becoming friends. In Asia, he met President R. Venkatarmanan in India, President Suharto in Indonesia, and Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad in Malaysia, before visiting Australia to meet Prime Minister Bob Hawke, and then he went on to meet the people of Japan. He notably did not visit the Soviet Union, a long-time African National Congress supporter. In May 1990, Mandela led a multiracial ANC delegation to preliminary negotiations with a government deregulation of 11 Afrikaner men. Mandela impressed them with his discussion of Afrikaner history, and negotiations led to the Grootschuer Munich, in which the government lifted the state of emergency. In August, Mandela, recognizing the ANC's severe military disadvantage, offered a ceasefire, the Pretoria Minute, for which he was widely criticized by MK activists. He spent much of the time trying to unify and build the ANC, appearing at a Johannesburg conference in December, attended by 1,600 delegates, many of whom found him more moderate than expected. At the ANC's July 1991 National Conference in Durban, Mandela admitted to the party's faults and announced his aim to build a strong and well-oiled task force for securing majority rule. At the conference, he was elected ANC president, replacing the Eling Tambo and a 50-strong multiracial mixed-gendered national executive was elected. Mandela was given an office in the newly purchased ANC headquarters at Shell House, Central Johannesburg and moved with Winnie to her large Soweto home. Their marriage was increasingly strained as he learned of her affair with Dali Pofu, but he supported her during her trial for kidnapping and assault. He gained funding for her defense from the International Defense and Aid Fund for Southern Africa and from Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. But in June 1991, she was found guilty and sentenced to six years in prison, reduced to two years on appeal. On April 13, 1992, Mandela publicly announced his separation from Winnie. The ANC forced her to step down from the national executive for misappropriating ANC funds. Mandela moved into the mostly white Johannesburg suburb of Houghton, Mandela's reputation was further damaged by the increase on black-on-black violence, particularly between ANC and Inkatha supporters in 
KwaZulu-Natal, in which thousands died. Mandela met with Inkathot leader Bethelizi, but the ANC prevented further negotiations on the issue. Mandela recognized that there was a third force within the state intelligence services fueling the slaughter of the people and openly blamed de Klerk, whom he increasingly distrusted, for the Sibokan massacre. In September 1991, a national peace conference was held in Johannesburg in which Mandela, Bethelizi, and de Klerk signed a peace accord through the, though the violence continued. The converse, convection of a democratic South Africa began in December 1991 at the Johannesburg World Trade Center, attended by 228 delegates from 19 political parties. Although Cyril Ramfasosa led the ANC's delegation, Mandela remained a key figure, and after de Klerk used a closing speech to condemn the ANC's violence, he took the stage to denounce de Klerk as head of an illegitimate, discredited minority regime. Dominated by the National Party and the ANC, little negotiation was achieved. The convention was held on May 1992, in which de Klerk insisted that post-apartheid South Africa must use a federal system with a rotating presidency to ensure the protection of ethnic minorities. Mandela opposed this, demanding a unitary system governed by majority rule. Following the Biopatang massacre of ANC activists by government-aided Inkitha's militants, Mandela called off negotiations before attending a meeting of the Organization of African Unity in Senegal, at which he called for a special session of the UN Security Council and proposed that the UN peacekeeping force be stationed in South Africa to prevent state terrorism. The UN sent special envoy Cyrus Vance to the country to aid negotiations. Calling for domestic mass action, in August, the ANC organized the largest ever strike in South African history, and his supporters marched on Pretoria. Following the Bishow massacre, in which 28 ANC supporters and one soldier were shot dead by Siski Defense Force during a protest march, Mandela released that mass action was leading to further violence and resumed negotiations in September. He agreed to do so on the condition that all political prisoners be released, that Zulu traditional weapons be banned, and that Zulu hostels would be fenced off, the latter two measures to prevent further Inkathub attacks. Under increasing pressure, de Klerk reluctantly agreed. The negotiations agreed that a multiracial general election would be held, resulting in a five-year coalition government of national unity and constitutional assembly that gave the National Party continuing influence. The ANC also conceded 
to safeguarding the jobs of white civil servants. Such concessions brought fierce internal criticism to Mandela. The duo agreed on an interim constitution, guaranteeing separation of powers, creating a constitutional court, and including a U.S.-style Bill of Rights. It also divided the country into nine provinces, each with its own premier and civil service, a concession between de Klerk's desire for federalism and Mandela's for unitary government. The democratic process was threatened by the concerned South Africans group, an alliance of far-right Afrikaner parties and black ethnic secessionist groups like Inkatha. In June 1993, the white supremacist Afrikaner Wiesenstan Wiebigen attacked the Kempton Park World Trade Center. Following the murder of ANC leader Chris Haney, Mandela was made a publicized speech to calm rioting. Soon after appearing at a mass funeral in Soweto for Tambu, who had died from a stroke. In July 1993, both Mandela and de Klerk visited the U.S., independently meeting President Bill Clinton, and each receiving the Liberty Medal. Soon after, they were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in Norway. Influenced by young ANC leader Thabo Biki, Mandela began meeting with big business figures and played down his support for nationalistic fearing that it would scare away much-needed foreign investment. Although criticized by socialists, ANC members, he was encouraged to embrace private enterprise by members of the Chinese and Vietnamese Communist parties at the January 1992 World Economic Forum in Switzerland. Mandela also made a cameo appearance as a schoolteacher reciting one of Malcolm X's speeches in the final scene of the 1992 film Malcolm X. With the election set for April 27, 1994, the ANC began campaigning, opening 100 election offices and hiring advisor Stanley Greenberg. Greenberg orchestrated the foundation of people's forums across the country at which Mandela could appear. Though a poor public speaker, he was a popular figure with great status among black South Africans. The ANC campaign on reconstruction and development program to build a million houses in 5 years, introduce universal free education and extend access to water and electricity. The party slogan was a better life for all. Although it was not explained how this development would be funded. With the exceptions of the Weekly Mail and the New Nation, South Africa's press opposed Mandela's election, fearing continued ethnic strife, instead supporting the National or Democratic Party. Mandela devoted much of his time fundraising for the ANC touring North America, Europe, and Asia to meet wealthy donors, including former supporters of the apartheid regime. He also urged a reduction in the voting age 
from 18 to 14. Rejected by the ANC, this policy became the subject of ridicule. Concern that COSAG would undermine the election, particularly in the wake of the Battle of Bop and Shell House Massacre, incidents of violence involving the AWB and Inkatha, respectively. Mandela met with Afrikaner politicians and generals, including P.W. Bota, Pik Boda, and Constran Vision, persuading many to work within the democratic system, and with de Klerk, convinced Ithaca's Bruseli to enter the election rather than launch a war of secession. As leader of the two major parties, de Klerk and Mandela appeared on a televised debate. Although de Klerk was widely considered the better speaker at the event, Mandela's offer to shake his hand surprised him, leading some commentators to consider it a victory from Mandela. The election went ahead with little violence, although an AWB cell killed 20 with a car bomb. As widely expected, the ANC won a sweeping victory, taking 62% of the vote, just short of the two-thirds majority to unilaterally change the Constitution. The ANC was also victorious in seven provinces, with Inkatha and the National Party each taking another. Mandela voted at the Olange High School in Durban, and though the ANC's victory ensured his election as president, he publicly accepted that the election had been marred by instances of fraud and sabotage. The newly elected National Assembly first act was to formally elect Mandela as South Africa's first black chief executive. His inauguration took place in Pretoria on May 10, 1994, televised to a billion viewers globally. The event was attended by 4,000 guests, including world leaders from desperate backgrounds. Mandela headed a government of national unity dominated by the ANC, which alone had no experience of governance, but containing representatives from the National Party and Inkatha. Under the interim constitution, Inkatha and the MP were entitled to seats in the government by virtue of winning of at least 20 seats. In keeping with early agreements, de Klerk became first deputy president, and Thabo Becky was selected as second. Although Becky was not his first choice for the job, Mandela grew to rely heavily on him throughout his presidency, allowing him to organize policy details. Moving into the presidential office at Tunuhus in Cape Town, Mandela allowed the clerk to retain the presidential residence in the Grootshur estate, instead settling into the nearby Westbrook Manor which he named, renamed Gindendal, meaning Valley of Mercy in Afrikaans. Retaining his Houghton home, he also had a house built in his home village of Kunu, which he visited regularly, walking around the area, meeting with locals, and judging tribal disputes.
At age 76, he faced various ailments, and though exhibiting continued energy, he felt isolated and lonely. He often entertained celebrities such as Michael Jackson and Whoopi Goldberg and the Spice Girls, and befriended ultra-rich businessmen like Harry Oppenheimer, as well as Queen Elizabeth II on her March 1995 state visit to South Africa, resulting in strong criticism from ANC anti-capitalists. Despite his opulent surroundings, Mandela lived simply, donating a third of his half a million rand annual income to the Nelson Mandela Child Children's Fund, which he had founded in 1995. Although speaking out in favor of freedom of the press and befriending many journalists, Mandela was critical of much of the country's media, noting that it was overwhelmingly owned and run by middle-class whites and believing that it's focused too much on scaremongering around crime. Changing clothes several times a day after assuming the presidency, one of Mandela's trademark was his use of Batik shirts, known as Mandiba shirts, even on formal occasions. In December 1994, Mandela's autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, was published. In late 1994, he attended the 49th conference of the ANC in Bluefontein, at which a more militant national executive was elected. Among them, Winnie Mandela. Although she expressed an interest in reconciling, Nelson initiated divorce proceedings in August 1995. By 1995, he had entered into a relationship with Gracie Machel, a Mozambican political activist, 27 years his junior, who was the widow of former president Samora Machel. They had first met in July 1990, when she was still in mourning, but their friendship grew into partnership, with Machel accompanying him on many of his foreign visits. She turned down Mandela's first marriage proposal, wanting to retain some independence and dividing her time between Mozambique and Johannesburg. Presiding over the transition from apartheid minority rule to a multicultural democracy, Mandela saw national reconciliation as the primary task of his presidency. Having seen other post-colonial African economies damaged by the departure of white elites, Mandela worked to reassure South Africa's white population that they were protected and represented in the Rainbow Nation. Mandela attempted to create the broadest possible coalition in his cabinet, with the clerk as first deputy president. Other national party officials became ministers for agriculture, energy, environment, and minerals and energy. And Bulathes was named minister for home affairs. The other cabinet positions were taken by ANC members, many of whom, like Joe Modais, Alfred Zoe, Joe Slovo, Mac Maharja and Dula Omar had long been comrades, although others such as Tito Boweni and Jeff Radibi were much younger. Mandela's relationship with Clerk was strained, 
Mandela thought that de Klerk was intentionally provocative, and de Klerk felt that he was being intentionally humiliated by the president. In January 1995, Mandela heavily chastised him for awarding amnesty to 3,500 police just before the election, and later criticized him for defending former Minister of Defense Magnus Milan, who was then later charged with murder. Mandela personally met with senior figures of the apartheid regime, including Hendrik Verwoerd's widow, Betsy Shumbi, and the lawyer Percy Utar, emphasizing personal forgiveness and reconciliation. He announced that courageous people do not fear forgiving for the sake of peace. He encouraged black South Africans to get behind the previously hated national rugby team, the Springboks, as South Africa hosted the 1995 Rugby World Cup. After the Springboks won an epic final over New Zealand, Mandela himself presented the trophy to Captain Francois Pinier, an Afrikaner, wearing a Springbok shirt with Pinier's own number six on the back. It was widely seen as a major step in the reconciliation of white and black South Africa. As de Klerk later put it, Mandela won the hearts of millions of white rugby fans. Mandela's effort at reconciliation assuaged the fears of whites, but also drew criticism from more militant blacks. His estranged wife, Winnie, accused the ANC of being more interested in appeasing whites than in helping blacks. Mandela oversaw the formation of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate crimes committed under apartheid by both the government and the ANC, appointing Desmond Tutu as its chair. To prevent the creation of martyrs, the commission granted individual amnesties in exchange for testimonies of crimes committed during the apartheid era. Dedicated in February 1996, it held two years of hearings detailing rapes, tortures, bombings, and assassinations before issuing its final report in October 1998. Both de Klerk and Becky appealed to have parts of the report suppressed, though only de Klerk's appeal was successful. Mandela praised the commission's work, stating that it had helped us move away from the past to concentrate on the present and the future. Mandela's administration inherited a country with a huge disparity in wealth and services between white and black communities. Of a population of 40 million, around 23 million lacked electricity or adequate sanitation. 12 million lack clean water supplies, with 2 million children not in school, and a third of the population illiterate. There was 33% unemployment, and just under half the population lived below the poverty line. Government financial services were nearly depleted, with a fifth of the national budget being spent on debt repayment, meaning that the extent of the promised reconstruction and development program was scaled back 
with none of the proposed nationalism or job creation. Instead, the government adapted liberal economic policies designed to promote foreign investment. Adhering to the Washington Consensus, advocated by the World Bank and international monetary funds. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.